to uh, invite you to open your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, to Psalm 24. Uh, we all know that we have entered into uh, strange days, a new season where everything has shifted. Uh, those of you who are regularly a part of Sunrise uh, may recall a number of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I began a short mini-series of sermons. It was going to be three weeks long. It was going to begin then and, and uh, follow up the next two weeks, which we would have meant we would be done by this morning. Um, a mini-series on, on what the Bible teaches us about money and giving. The elders had asked me to do that, and so I had embarked on that beginning three weeks ago. Now, uh, since then, our whole reality has shifted, and so the last two weeks, uh, we've gone in other directions. We have uh, explored uh, two weeks ago, 1 Peter 5, 7, the, the invitation that God gives us to cast all our anxiety on Him because He cares for us and that we can uh, not live with worry and fear because of that. Last week we looked at Psalm, uh, another, uh, Psalm 46, I think it was, uh, that, that speaks of God as our refuge, God as our, 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 our rock, uh, the one in whom uh, we can trust and so that we need not live with fear in the midst of whatever is going on in our world. And so now the reality is this COVID-19 situation is an ongoing reality, uh, will likely be the case for months. Um, and so I'm in the process of shifting back to uh, normal life and uh, have, have wrestled with that a little bit. What does this mean for, uh, for our, our preaching series, where we're going? Um, and so this morning, I'm going to return to that mini-series of three weeks focused on what the Bible teaches us about uh, money and giving in our lives as disciples. Now, those of you who missed the opening sermon in that uh, three weeks ago, uh, it is online. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon that introduced this, explain at the beginning of that message uh, a little bit of background, why the elders have asked me to do that. This is not a topic that we have explicitly uh, spoken about much in my years at Sunrise, just as it comes up as I have preached through different biblical books. Uh, but in this season, as we move to our, the end of our fiscal year and our annual general meeting, and as the elders uh, were in the process of seeking to prepare a budget, which is basically a ministry plan for us as a church family, uh, there were some challenges that we faced. And so uh, the elders felt it would be wise and helpful for us as a body to explore this topic, to think about these things, to, to have these conversations. And so um, that's why we've embarked on this. Again, if you didn't listen to, if you missed the first week when we looked at this three weeks ago, I do encourage you to go online and, and listen to that as, as an introduction. I'm not going to go back over uh, all the reasons for this. But in that message, the first message of this series, we looked at Matthew 6, 19-24, where Jesus highlights for us some laws, if you will, realities, things that are simply true, like gravity. Uh, and you, you may recall I showed a, a short clip about the Klett brothers and their Mary Poppins experience, um, uh, thinking about gravity and how whether we think about it, whether we're aware of it or not, gravity uh, exercises its force, its power on us. So too are these other laws or realities that Jesus spoke about. He, he spoke about the fact that we all treasure something and that whatever we treasure, our hearts will follow. He spoke about how we all fix our eyes on something, we're focused on something, and that impacts our lives. And he, he, Jesus said that we all serve something or someone. 
and uh, quoted that Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. Uh, in, in the context of, of, of money or material possessions, spoke about that and the, the link, the important place that has in our lives as people, as human beings, but in our, uh, in our uh, discipleship as we follow Jesus. Randy Alcorn wrote this, there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. So that was, that was what we looked at in that first week. This morning, even in the midst of COVID-19, and now uh, as our economic situation shifts and changes and becomes uh, pretty dire in many ways, uh, we still want to continue to explore what the Bible teaches us about money and about uh, its role in our lives as disciples. Uh, that reality of what God teaches uh, does not change, even though the particulars of our uh, reality economically may. I want to begin this morning, before we turn to Psalm 24, uh, verses 1 to 2, which is our text for this morning, I want to begin by sharing a story with you uh, at some length about two men, uh, John Seville and Chip Ingram. Uh, Chip Ingram was a young, inexperienced pastor of a small congregation in Texas. Uh, John was the chairman of the board. Uh, Chip and John really had a very little in common. Uh, John, uh, Chip was in his late 20s uh, when he met John. John was in his mid-70s. Uh, Chip actually thought that John was a little kooky at first. Uh, Chip writes this about John. John had simple answers for complex questions. He quoted Galatians 2.20 and Oswald Chambers as the answer to almost everything. On top of that, he said, praise the Lord a lot, which was very uncool in my mind. And he drove a Cadillac, which caused me to question his spiritual maturity. I mean, how can you really love God and have nice stuff? That didn't make sense to me. One day, John invited Chip to uh, drive into Dallas to have lunch with him uh, at the downtown accounting firm that John owned. Uh, John told Chip to wear a, a tie because the restaurant that he was taking him to required it. Uh, Chip uh, recalls feeling incredibly intimidated as he traveled up the elevator in this glass uh, building to the wood-paneled reception area of John's accounting firm and then up to the restaurant on the top of the building. Chip writes this, My middle-class roots were being deeply challenged as we dined on the top floor overlooking all of Dallas. It was a world I had never experienced, and John seemed particularly thrilled to treat me to the best he could offer. Toward the end of lunch, John pulled a small white box out of his coat pocket and told Chip that he had a proposition uh, he wanted Chip to consider. He called it a business deal of sorts. Not a business deal to make money, but a business deal to give money away. Then John laid out his three-point outline of what he called the secret pact. He said, number one, I have a desire to help hurting and poor people. Number two, you are in contact with hurting and poor people daily. Number three, I want you to be my eyes and ears and help them as God leads you. With that, John opened the small white box and removed from it a brown leather checkbook and handed it to Chip. Now, I realize uh, some of those who are younger, you may not even know what a check is, but we used to use checks. You'd write an amount and, and who you're giving it to and, and sign it. And it was a way of, of uh, 
You probably know what checks are, but they're not so common now. But, but he gave him a checkbook, and, and across the front of the checkbook, as Chip, uh, Chip took it from John, he saw these words, Pastor's Discretionary Fund. He, he looked into it, and the depo- deposit ledger at the back uh, revealed a balance of $5,000. Chip looked up at this loving, kooky man and said, Do you mean you want me to figure out uh, you want me to figure out who to help and then help them the way you would if you saw their situation, Mr. Seville? And John smiled and said, that's exactly what I want you to do, Chip. Chip writes, John's idea was intriguing and the cause was inspiring, but I was a little overwhelmed at first. What if I chose to give to the wrong people or for the wrong reasons? How much should I give in each situation? How would I figure out which cases were legitimate and which ones weren't? It felt like a lot of pressure, and I was nervous. But over time, it got easier, and it got to be fun. Each day as I prepared to leave the house, I put my wallet in one back pocket and John's checkbook in the other. I started to feel like Santa Claus every day of the year, wondering who God wanted to help with John's money. It turned into an exciting adventure. What I want to help each one of us see this morning, what I want each one of us to recognize is that God has invited each and every one of us into precisely this same exciting adventure. He has entrusted his money, he's entrusted his resources, he's entrusted his stuff to us as managers, as stewards, to use the way he would use it, to use for his purposes, to use to bless others, to use for his glory. He's entrusted that to us. He has invited us into that same great adventure. Here's what I want to do with you this morning in the time we have together. First, I want us to turn to Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, which will be our jumping off point. And I want to unpack the truth of God's dominion or His ownership over all things. Second, I want to bring to our attention the purposes of God as revealed to us in the biblical story. Third, I want to highlight the character of God as our good Father. And then fourth, I want to think with you about the exciting adventure that God has invited us into as His stewards, as managers of His stuff. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 24. Just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Here, I'll read them to you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The truths uh, so plainly laid out in these two verses are, are not found only here in Scripture. They are evident throughout the pages of Scripture. The God whom we encounter in the Bible, the God whom we encounter in the person of Jesus, is the creator of all things, including the very world that we live in. The psalmist says, He founded the world on the seas. Remember last Sunday, if you were with us, uh, I spoke about how in the ancient world the sea was understood to be this uh, place that was menacing, this place of chaos, something to be feared. So it's significant here that the psalmist says that, that God founded the world on the seas. God has spoken into uh, the cosmos. God has created the cosmos. He has established a solid, stable place for human life in the midst of that 
uh, menacing, chaotic thing called the sea in their world. God has created the world. He has created a place for us to live. And He has not only created the world, but He has created all of us. So it is all things that God has made. All belongs to Him. The world is the Lord's and all who live in it. God owns everything as the creator of everything. When I was a child, we uh, had a record player. And uh, I would, at times, we had a number of records that told children's stories. And I remember one story that I, I really enjoyed. There'd be times where I'd go into our living room. It was not a place in our house that we could go to often. But if we were going to listen to a record, we could. And I'd go into there and, and put on a record and listen to stories. And one of the stories was called Twice Mine. It was a story of a little boy who made a sailboat. He, he built it and painted it and put a sail on it and tied a string to it. And when it was all done, he took it out to a lake close to his house and he stayed on the shore. He put the boat in the water and it began to blow around. It was a windy day and, and he had a lot of fun walking along the shore, watching his boat bob in the waves and, and blow along in the wind until suddenly the string broke. The boat broke free and it sailed away across the lake and he lost it. He was devastated. Sometime later, when he was in a town not far from his own town, he walked past the store window and, and he saw in the window his sailboat, the same sailboat that he had built that, that, that was his. And so he, he went home and he found enough money, he scrounged money and he went back to that shop and he purchased his sailboat. And I remember him saying of that boat, it's, it's twice mine. It's mine because first I made it and, and then now I bought it. And, and of course, the story points to the fact that when we put our faith in Christ and we are redeemed, we are twice His. God made us and so we belong to Him. But then through Christ, He has bought us. He's redeemed us. Well, God, as creator of all things, owns all things. He is over all things. All things are His. Now, with that clearly articulated both here, here in this psalm, I want us to think a little bit more broadly. Often in our Western culture, the church has the reputation of just wanting your money. And I'll admit there are sometimes that reputation is well-deserved. But that is not a conclusion that arises or should arise carefully from a careful reading of the Bible. Though the scriptures do have a great deal to say about money, about generosity, about how our following Jesus ought to impact how we manage or handle the resources, the material resources we have, we need to hear this. God owns it all, and God does not need our money. Listen to this in Psalm 50. God says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. It speaks again of God's ownership, His dominion over all things. All things are His. He has made them all. Everything belongs to Him. And yet He says here, He would not ask us if He needed something. God does not need our money. God lacks nothing. There's a theological uh, term for this, the aseity of God. 
Uh, aseity simply means that God exists independently, that God is self-sustaining, if you will. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. God doesn't need our resources. He doesn't need our money. So he owns it all. It's all his. He doesn't need anything from us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it. Yet God is not lacking. He doesn't need from us. We need to bear that in mind as we move forward. I want us to turn from the, that reality that we see in Psalm 24 to, to reflect together on, secondly, the purpose of God that we see in, scriptures, in the Scriptures. As we walk through the pages of the Bible, uh, not only do we see the theme of God's dominion, God's ownership, that God has created all things, that all things belong to Him, we also see the theme of brokenness. God's good creation has been marred. It has been messed up. Uh, the title of a book written by Cornelius Plantinga uh, puts it well. His book is entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Abbreviary of Sin. The biblical narrative is bracketed by pictures of, of shalom, of peace, of the right relatedness of things, everything the way it's supposed to be. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, opens up with the account of God's creation, and, and, and there's this garden paradise, a, a man and a woman in right relationship with God, their creator in right relationship with one another. Everything is good. And, and the biblical story concludes with the book of Revelation with God's new creation, uh, the new Jerusalem, this, this garden city descending from heaven to earth, a, a, a new paradise, and the people of God in right relationship with God, their Redeemer, and with one another, and everything is good. These two pictures of all things, the way they're supposed to be, bracket the whole of Scripture, but between those two pictures of shalom, of the right relatedness of all things, we witness the destructive power of sin. We don't only witness it, the truth is we all participate in it. We contribute to it. The Bible says that we all sin. We all transgress. We all fall short. We have all rebelled against God's right rule over us as the one who made us, as the one to whom we're accountable, as his creations. We have all rejected his rule. We have all rebelled. We've not only done wrong things, we have, we have damaged that relationship. We have rebelled against God. We have sinned. Planning in his book, he, he says this, In this book, I am trying to retrieve an old awareness that has slipped and changed in recent decades. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it, but the shadow has dimmed. He goes on and says, As a child growing up in the 50s, I heard as many sermons about sin as I did about grace. The assumption in those days seemed to be that you couldn't understand either without understanding both. If we hope to understand God's purpose in redemption, if we hope to understand His grace and His love, we need to understand the seriousness, the significance, the gravity of sin. The Bible is clear that, our, that we have all sinned against a holy God, that we have violated not merely a set of commands, but violated a relationship. We have, uh, we have thumbed our noses at God. God made us. God made us to know Him, to love Him, to live in fellowship with Him. He made us to represent Him, to reflect His character in His good creation. 
and yet we have rejected His rightful rule. We have turned our backs on Him. We have violated His commands. We have violated our relationship with Him. We have sinned. And the Bible tells us that because of that, we deserve death. We deserve eternal death. We deserve His judgment. In Romans 6, we read, For the wages of sin is death. God could be perfectly just, would be perfectly just in condemning every one of us. We would simply be receiving what we deserve, His judge judgment for our sin, for our rebellion, for our wickedness. Yet here is where we see the gloriousness of His grace. See, God's desire is not that we would perish, not that we would fall under the judgment that we deserve. No, God's desire is to rescue us. God's desire is to redeem us. God's desire is to restore His creation to what it was intended to be, the right relatedness of all things, to bring us back into fellowship with Him, to restore relationships horizontally, that He would set things right, that He would establish shalom, peace, again, that though things right now are not the way they're supposed to be, that He would make it so. God has not abandoned us in our sin. God has not abandoned His creation in its sin and in its lostness. God has acted to redeem. God has acted to rescue. God sent His Son, Jesus. God put on flesh and came to earth, the person of His Son, Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus lived a life of complete submission and surrender to the Father. Jesus walked a life on this planet and lived a life of obedience. He lived the life that you and I have been called to live, and yet we have failed to live. And then Jesus, though He was innocent, He paid the penalty for our sin. He went to the cross and suffered God's just judgment upon us. He bore it on the cross, so that through faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven, we can be washed, we can be made whole, we can be adopted as His daughters, as His sons, brought into fellowship with God our Father, to have that relationship that has been severed by our rebellion and our sin restored. And we are clothed with Christ's perfection. We are clothed with His perfect obedience. We're clothed with His righteousness. The Father looks at us and no longer sees our sin and our brokenness, but sees the perfection of His Son, Jesus. We are made right, and that is the good news. And that is available to all, all in our world, all who would put their faith in Jesus, all who would repent and believe. Repentance means turning from our sin, acknowledging our sin to God, saying, God, I turn from that. I need your grace and, and putting our hope fully in Jesus, praying, Jesus, have mercy on me. If you're listening this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never repented and believed, you can do that right now. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus has come to redeem all who will turn to him. God has not abandoned us in our sin. We must repent and believe. We must throw ourselves on Him, we must cry out, Jesus, You are my only hope, have mercy on me. God's purpose, 
God's mission is to redeem. It is to set right. It is to restore what was broken. It is to rescue lost, rebellious sinners. I want to turn from God's mission, God's purpose, to God's character. God who rescues, God who seeks to redeem, is a God who loves us. A God who has not abandoned us. A God who cares. A God who longs for you. Longs for me. God who is revealed most fully in Jesus. A God who is generous. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this about Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God, our Father, gave his Son, Jesus. Jesus came and and lived as a man, as a human being. He became poor so that we might become rich. So that he he would bear the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive his reward. And and lest we think, sometimes people have come to some wrong conclusions and they, they, they read in Scripture and they think that there's this, you know, wrathful God, and then Jesus appeases him. But the truth is that in John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world. God the Father, Son, and Spirit is unified, and on the same page in redemption, God the Father so loves us that he sent his Son. Jesus willingly laid down his life. The heart of God is generosity towards us to redeem, to save, to rescue. God loves us. God is generous to us. God has spared no expense sending His own Son in order to redeem us. God is not some cosmic killjoy. God is good. God's desire is to bless, to rescue. But so often we think otherwise. I recall as a kid growing up in the church hearing messages about the will of God and how God would have a plan for your life. And it scared me, quite honestly, because I thought God would maybe, you know, what, what if he chooses something really boring that I don't want to do? What if, what if God makes me a pastor? I remember thinking that as a young kid. How incredibly boring would that be? You'd have to read the Bible and study it all the time. Like, that would be awful, I thought. The truth is, God is good. And there's nothing I would rather be and do in my life than what God has called me to. So often we have wrong ideas of what God is like. God is good. God is full of love. And He is generous. He has not even spared His Son, but sent Jesus in to to rescue us, to redeem us. God's heart is to bless. God's heart is to restore. God's heart is, is... to, be, to pour out His good gifts in our lives. All the way back in Genesis 12, after sin has entered the world, God calls Abram and He says to Abram, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's desire is to bless, to pour out His goodness. Jesus speaks in Matthew of our Father in heaven who gives good gifts. We need to understand the heart of God that is to rescue, to love, to restore, to be generous, to bless, to do us good, not evil. Now that is certainly not to say that all in this life will be rosy. 
We know that because of sin, things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. I've often said God is not a divine vending machine. That if we do our part, he'll give us the things we want. No, this world is full of trouble. We experience that right now. We're seeing that. With COVID-19, with the massive economic impact in our world, with tornadoes, with other things. No, things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. But we need to know this. We need to know the character of God, that God is good. That God's desire is to restore, to rescue, to save. That God can be trusted, even in the midst of trouble. I want to turn now to the fourth thing I wanted to talk about today. And that is this exciting adventure that God has invited us into, this assignment that He has given us. God has invited us in Scripture to be His stewards, His managers. See, the reality that God has created all things, that all things belong to Him, and that God is on a mission, that God's purpose is to restore what is broken, to rescue, to bless, to do good, to establish shalom, Peace, the right relatedness of all things. See, that, that shows us that God is, God, God's invited us into those realities with Him, to join Him in His mission, to join Him in showing His blessing, to reflect His goodness, to reflect His character, His generosity in the world, to be His ambassadors whose lives bear witness to Him. We get to get in on his mission to reflect his character. And we do that as managers, as stewards. See, the truth from Psalm 24 that everything is him is an important truth that we need to grasp and that undergirds our lives as his disciples. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Next week, Lord willing, I will speak specifically about giving and we'll explore what the Bible says about tithing and some of those specific things. But, but here, what we need to grasp is that Everything belongs to God. Any thought that we give some to God and the rest is ours is wrong-headed. It's all His. Everything is His. We are stewards, managers of what belongs to Him. So our bank accounts, our retirement savings plans, our homes, our vehicles, our families, all that we have belongs to Him. Everything is Him. And our assignment, our, our, the mission that we are invited into is to steward what He has entrusted to us for His purposes. How might your life be different? How might my life be different if that truth that we live as stewards of things that are His, how might our lives be different? Even in the midst of this reality with COVID-19, even with the economic impact on our lives. See, the, the reality, the call to stewardship doesn't change. See, stewardship is about managing that which God has entrusted us to. So if in this season we see our, our resources diminished, we remain stewards not of what we don't have, but of what God has entrusted us to. It's all His. And if He chooses in His wisdom, in His plan to reduce what we have, we remain stewards of what He has entrusted to us. Stewardship is not simply a matter for those who have lots of discretionary money or wealth or material possessions. No, stewardship is something we are all called to do into as disciples. It's all His. 
There are so many cool stories I could tell you. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Bill Bright. Bill and Vanette Bright, his wife. Bill was a businessman in California in 1951. He came to Christ and him and his wife were led by the Lord to, uh, to enter an agreement, if you will. They called it a contract with God. But they decided that they would live on a nominal amount uh, just a modest annual salary, and that everything else that God gave them they would give away for the sake of His kingdom. Uh, God used them to establish Campus Crusade for Christ. And through their lives, they, God provided for them, and, and so much money flowed through their hands into kingdom work. They recognized that it was all from God, and they wanted to use it for His purposes. It was all His. But like I said, this isn't just for those who are really wealthy. This is true for all of us. Years ago, when I was in graduate school and seminary, uh, things were uh, tight financially for Christalina and I. She was teaching part-time. I was not working. I was spending money on school. And at one point in time, someone blessed us with a financial gift. And it, was, it came at a wonderful time. It was a huge help to us. But even in the midst of all uh, the expenses that we had and uh, that I would yet incur, I was only about halfway through school, became aware of a friend who was also studying who, who did not have adequate funds for school and, and God laid it on our hearts that we would, we would pay off his remaining tuition. And so with a fairly large chunk of money for us, Christine and I made that decision and, and unbeknownst to him, I trust that he won't watch this message online, he, he never knew who did it, but we, we blessed him and paid that off. And I remember the joy when he came to me and shared someone had had paid off his tuition. Someone had met that need. You see, we're invited as God's stewards to join him in his mission of giving money to his work of redemption, to, to using our resources, all that he's given us to bless, to demonstrate his goodness in this world. If we think about stewardship as this begrudging thing that we have to do, we are, we are missing the point. All that we have is His, and we have the, the privilege of using it for His purposes. I, I began with a story about Chip Ingram and John Seville. I want to return to that story now as I come in for a landing. Chip writes that there were three things that happened, and it was, happened in his life as a result of that secret pact with John. Uh, for one, he said he learned how to balance a checkbook. He never really worried about being so accurate and precise with his own money, which wasn't a blessing to his wife, he said. But when he had John's checkbook, he wanted to be sure that he knew when he met with John that he could account for, for the money that John had entrusted to him. And so he learned how to manage well and manage carefully and pay attention to where the money was going from. I, I remember hearing uh, someone say, that uh, many people in their checkbooks, they would, he was helping someone, and, and every once in a while he would see in their ledger ESP, and he said, what's ESP for? And, uh, and he was told it just means error someplace. Chip would have, that would have resonated with Chip before he learned to manage things. That was one thing that was a result in his life. But, but a second thing, he says this, he writes this, Rarely a day went by that I didn't think about John Seville. I was constantly asking myself, what would John do in this situation? How would John spend his money here? And then third, Ch 
Chip says that he and John became great friends. He writes this, he, that's John, never made me feel like his errand boy. Every few months, he would invite me into Dallas for lunch, not the kind of lunch I was used to. This was no fast food combo meal or daily special at the local diner. This was a celebration. John would buy me an extravagant meal, and I would tell him extravagant stories of how God had used his money. What an amazing testimony. What would it be like if for us as disciples, those same things happened in our lives as we recognize that God has entrusted us with whatever we have, whether it's a little or it's a lot, that God has entrusted that to us as his stewards, as managers, to use it for his purposes, to use it to bless and to do good and to, to, work, uh, to pour into his redemptive work. I love what John says, that he became a better manager of, of what he had. He, be, he learned how to track things. But I, I especially love that he said, what he says, rarely a day went by that I didn't think about John. I was regularly asking myself, what would John do? How would John want to use this? What would it be like if you and I, as disciples of Jesus, daily were, were asking that? God, what would you have me do with your money? What would you have me do with your car? What would you have me do with these resources that you've entrusted to me to manage for you? John said that that became a source of great intimacy in their friendship. And, and I love this third thing, that, that they would meet and they would celebrate over a meal, over an extravagant meal. They, they would enjoy that meal together, and he would share extravagant stories about what God was doing. You know, that, that as we are used by God, as we faithfully live as stewards and pour out what he has given us for his purposes to bless, bless and to serve and to pour into his redemptive work in the world, that our hearts will be filled with joy that there is great joy and delight. Not, not something we do begrudgingly. No, we are invited into this exciting adventure. We're invited to participate in the things of God for the purposes of God, for the glory of God, and the advance of His purposes. As I close, I just want to encourage us regardless of how the realities we live in are impacting us, regardless of how little or much God has entrusted to you, that we would put our trust fully in Jesus, that we wouldn't look to our retirement savings that are maybe taking a major hit, that we wouldn't look to our savings account, that we wouldn't look to our resources as our source of security, but we would look to God who is our refuge, who is our fortress, the one in whom we can trust, that we would remember that He is good, that He is at work to bless, to redeem, to set all things right. And that we would recognize that He has invited us into His work. And at a time like this, with so many opportunities around us, to go into each day with His checkbook in our back pocket, just asking that question, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus, where do you want to pour out your resources? How can we bless? How can we do good? How can I invest in your redemptive work in this world? And then as we see God work, that we would celebrate with him, that as God is blessed and delighted in his work in the world, that we would join him and that our hearts would be filled with joy. That's what stewardship is about. It's not this begrudging thing we have to do. No, it's a great privilege. It's a great adventure that we're invited into. It's not have to. We get to.
Just like John entered this secret pact with Chip, God is inviting us into this adventure. And I pray that even in the challenges we face, the new realities that we're living in, that we would embrace this role with joy of being His stewards, His managers, for the accomplishment of His purposes and His great delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, what You are doing in this world, Lord. We thank You for uh, Your goodness. And Lord, we thank You for this invitation, this adventure that You call us into. And I pray, Jesus, where we have looked to things or money and, and found security in that, I pray that we would let go of that. Lord, even that You would use this COVID-19 situation just to loosen our grip, that we would say, Lord, our, our confidence can't be in any of those things because those things are unstable, but You are stable. God, may our trust be grounded in You and Your character. And I pray that you would move in us, that you would fill us with joy and attentiveness, that we would pay attention to your Spirit's leading, that we would be faithful, that we would grow in faithfulness as your managers, and that, Lord, that you would give us great joy as we, uh, as we pour out what you've entrusted to us for your purposes, to bless, to do good, to serve your redemptive work in the world. Jesus, we pray that you would lead us, that you would accomplish this in us for your glory, we pray. Amen.